have your Bibles, go with me to the book of Ephesians. Hopefully the, these few pages are getting worn out. <laughs> we, uh, I don't, how many weeks have we been in Ephesians? 13 weeks? Okay. 13 weeks, this is week 13, and we have finally made it to chapter 2. Now some of that's large, in large part due to Rusty's amazing task and feat of preaching more than two verses last week so that we could finish up chapter one. So we have now made it to chapter two. Uh, and I haven't preached for two weeks, uh, so I have a lot of energy stored up. So hopefully your roast is on a timer. Um, but if you're going out to eat with us, they'll, they'll wait. So all that to say, Ephesians 2. Let me say this. Let me start off with these thoughts to kind of bring us into chapter 2, kind of a little bit as a review, some of it to kind of set the stage to help us walk into chapter 2 here. I want to encourage you, uh, if you're not used to taking notes, I'd encourage you to take notes. It'll help you follow along. Um, if you have your Bible, we're just going to, this is kind of how we do things. We just walk through verses of the Bible. We're just going to talk about it and explain it, apply it. We're going to kind of expose the meaning of it, not as if it is hidden, but, uh, but we're going to just expose the meaning of it. We're just going to walk right through it uh, and help hopefully apply this to our lives and see what God has to say to us today, how God would be glorified in these verses. So let me start with this. Let me review for us. Paul's concern so far in the book of Ephesians or the letter to the church in Ephesus has been the greatness of the glory of the Christian salvation, okay? So God's goal has been to, or sorry, Paul's desire here has been to really just recount and proclaim how awesome is the salvation of sinners that God has planned, that God has orchestrated, and that God has accomplished. So, for example, just to kind of recount what we've learned so far in chapter 1, just very, very quickly, we've seen things like God's choosing some to redeem, eternal, long election. We see that early on in chapter 1. We see that God has chosen to redeem these people through His blood, through the blood particularly of His Son. We've seen that He has predestined these people to be adopted as sons. They, it doesn't just, he's not just going to save them, but He's going to save them from something and save them to something, to an inheritance that is unparalleled on this earth, unparalleled to anything that we could even think of. Paul says very quickly here in the beginning of chapter 1, he says, chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse, chapter 3, verse, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, who has blessed us in Christ with what? He says, every spiritual blessing. Again, Paul is trying to proclaim to those in Ephesus and us today of the greatness of the Christian salvation. The only salvation. He also talks at the end of there how we are sealed in verse 13. He says, believed in Him who were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So not only has God planned this in eternity past, not only has God enacted this, but He has secured it for the future too. And Paul is saying, this is 
a story. This is the reality of the Christian salvation. See its greatness. Now what's interesting, to kind of move on from a retelling of this, is that these people have already been rescued and redeemed, and yet Paul prays at the end of chapter 1 that the eyes of their hearts may be opened, that they would have understanding. Look there at in verse 18, sorry, 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. So these people that, he has re- that God has rescued, that God has redeemed, that God has now sealed, Paul is saying, I'm praying that you, that God has already done this in you, I'm praying that you would have your hearts enlightened, that you would know what is the hope to which He has called you, that they would see the glorious God and the hope to which He has called them and planned for them. Paul cares here particularly that these people, that we too, would know the power of God used and displayed in their salvation. The power, the greatness that God did, that God worked to save them, and that He's working to keep them. More on this in a little bit, but just as a little bit of a teaser. This knowing plays some sort of role and the working out of salvation. So this knowing, this knowing of the greatness of God has a place, has a role, has an impact on our perseverance and the working out of our salvation. It's a factor, a huge one. So much so that Paul says, I pray that you would know the hope that he has called you to. Now this is important. I, I want to kind of draw it then into us here today, very quickly and very briefly. Many of us walk each and every day through, or we all do, through life's struggles. Struggle with sin, struggle with emotional entrapment, struggle with pain, many different struggles. And, and for many of us, we have no clue the power and the greatness of God that He wonderfully worked to bring about your salvation, and is using to keep you in His arms. And you struggle with this, whatever it is, day in and day out. And I hope, my prayer, is that today you would understand more clearly, that your eyes would be enlightened just a bit more to the power and greatness of God used and displayed in saving yours and mine's wretched soul. And some say, oh, well, I, I know how great God is. I, I, he's great. He's, I've experienced some mighty things. And so I, I want to tell you, Paul's prayer was not that you would be able to recount experiences of God's great power. Paul prays that you'd be enlightened to know the hope that he's called you to. And that this calling to, as we'll see, and it's, it's kind of hard because we're so into the details, particularly today, But this hope to which He's called you, this knowing and understanding the greatness is going to have an impact on the spiritual warfare that He's going to talk about in chapter 6. So this continuing to live and and living our way towards heaven, this knowing the greatness of the power of God that He's worked plays a part 
in making that journey. And so, my question is this. How do you measure such a thing? If knowing and understanding the greatness of God worked in salvation is such an important thing, how do you measure such a thing? How do you fathom such an incredible thing? And I think Paul begins to answer this question right here in Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 1. Let's read. He said, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now let me reread this, because I want it to settle in. We're primarily just going to look at verses 1 and 2 today. We'll get to 3 next week. He goes this, and you, listen, you were dead in, your, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I will stop there. In order to understand the greatness of the power, Paul implies, Paul is saying we need to understand the plight of man, the problem with man, the situation in which we all were once in, and some are still in today. We need to understand just how bad the situation was, just how bad the problem was. You see, if we don't understand the real problem, then we'll never understand the right solution. Man is not, we who are followers of Jesus, were not merely sick. We did not primarily need a ticket to heaven, and we did not need someone to just give us the right joy. Our problem is much greater than that. Look at Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Lloyd-Jones says, he says, man never starts on ground level as it were. We do not start neutral. We do not start in a kind of indeterminate state, neither good nor bad. No, we start in the depths of a pit. And that's where Paul's taking us in chapter 2 in verse 1. So, so much for having a feel-good motivational speech this morning. Paul says we were dead. This is where we must start, and this is where I want to encourage us today. We must never lose sight of this. Day in, day out, we cannot lose sight of chapter 2, verse 1, 2, and 3. We also, obviously, as we're going to, as we work forward, not lose sight of verse 4. But for now, verses 1 and 2. You see, the gospel met us right where we were. And we need to understand where we were if we're to see the greatness of the gospel work to meet us where we were. So with that said, knowing what we were rescued from brings incredible clarity to the greatness of God's salvation. That really should be like my title uh, today, but that's kind of the 
the thrust that I want us to, to feel today is that knowing what we were rescued from brings incredible clarity to the greatness of God's salvation. We will never have an appropriate understanding of the greatness of salvation until we realize what we would still be had God not rescued us. And I want to put it that way specifically. So yes, it's true to say that this is who we were, and that's, that's really Paul's main thrust, is this is who you were, but it's also true to say that this is who you would be had God not done this in chapter 1 that he did. So this is who you would be had God not rescued you. It's also true if God had rescued you, this is who you were. I think we all, this is, and this is why I want to press our minds that direction, because I think all of us, are very comfortable with thinking, well, this is who I was. This is not who I am anymore, which is true. But I think what happens often is that we become so distantly remembering of the past. Like, we've, we've so distanced ourselves from what God rescued us from that it's almost like we've forgotten about it. And Paul's saying here, don't forget about it. This is who you were. And this is who you would be right now had God not worked what He so wonderfully worked in chapter 1. And God has rescued you. Again, He will later, Paul will later speak of the way they are fighting with the same evils that they once followed, right? So that's going to come, particularly in chapter 6, where you know, you're warring this battle. Well, who's that battle with? It's the same evils that you followed back before you were rescued. You're going to war with that, except you're going to war with that with the Spirit instead of just following it like you did. All of us live each and every day. And here's, the, here's I think, the struggle. We live each and every day with such a vague understanding of redemption because we either do not know or we forget too easily just what we were redeemed from. For many of us, Jesus is some religious idea that we appeal to when we think about heaven. Right? And, and that's how salvation is often simply presented. If you don't want to go to hell, you need to believe in Jesus so that you can go to heaven. Now that's true. But that's such a shallow understanding of redemption. For others, Jesus is the, the one we go to when life's a little difficult. Well, He is the one we should go to when life gets a little difficult. I just want to present to you that life's a lot more difficult than you realize. And what you were rescued from is more difficult than you can even imagine or that we can even explain and understand today. So we're just going to try to understand the difficulty which we were rescued from as best we can and ask God to reveal that to us. But for many of us, this is all Jesus is. Uh, certainly Jesus is these things, but He is so much more. If you're a Tolkien fan, He's the eagle, right? To the rescue. If you're a Narnia fan, He's Aslan. He's your Savior. He's your rescuer. He is your redeemer. He is your victor. Jesus is so much more than just a ticket to heaven or someone to pray to when life is difficult. 
But you see, here's the deal. Here's the deal. Our nature says this. This is what our natures say. We don't want to see how evil we are, just how desperate we were. We just want to see how good God is. Just show me how good God is. Don't talk about how evil I am. I just want to see how good, good God is. But Paul implies, in order for us to see how great the power of God is, how good God is in salvation, we need to know just what God saved us from. What did he rescue us from? Where were we when he did this? Now, for some, we have two categories of people. For some, as we talk about what Paul says here, for some, this will be depressing. It'll be discouraging. And I hope that if it is for you, if it is that, that you understand that God is probably revealing to you that you don't know the good news of Jesus as your Redeemer. See, this is the purpose of the law, is to reveal our hopelessness. It's to reveal your hopelessness. So if at the revelation of your hopelessness today, if despair comes today, then what I believe, I hope God is doing is revealing to you that you do not actually know and believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross to be your Savior. Because apart from that, there is no hope. Apart from that, the goal is for us to feel hopeless. Because the only hope there is is in Jesus Christ. Now for others, this will make the contrast, the brilliance, if you will, of God's greatness even clearer. It will provoke greater praise and worship from your heart. It should elicit a faster and steadier pace toward glory. It should calm your soul concerning the overcoming of sin. It should do so many things. As you see more clearly and understand more fully the greatness of God, the power of God displayed in your salvation when we think about just what did he rescue us from. The doctrine of salvation is no good if you don't understand what you're being saved from. So when you think of Jesus and salvation, what comes to mind? Just thoughts of heaven? Thoughts of no pain or suffering? I mean, those things are true. But Christian, you need to realize that you were first saved from your sin and its destruction before you were saved to eternal life and glory with the Father. You're saved from this to this. God had to rescue you from this in order to save you to this. So today we have the pleasure of searching through the doctrine of sin. And we're going to just glance at, if you will, the plight of man, our sin problem. We'll talk a little bit more about this next week. Next week will essentially be part two. But when we first understand the problem, again, if we're going to understand the solution. Now this can't be handled like many of us handle the doctor, right? This is how we handle the doctor. We have an ailment hindering daily life, whatever that ailment might be. We go to the doctor, we tell him the ailment, he gives us a pill and we forget about it, right? Pop the pill or... Go then, well, then we go to the pharmacist, right? I don't want to leave out our, our, the middleman there. And uh, he gives us the pill, or she gives us the pill, and then we pop it, and then we often forget about it. Well, assuming once the ailment is gone. This predicament we must understand if we are going to understand the solution. Why? Because the further knowing of the solution is a part of the solution. Like a further knowing 
of what God has done and the powerful work just is, plays a role in our pursuing and moving forward in this. It's not what saves us, but knowing what saves us is part of what fills in. It's part of what brings hope. It's part of what gives more clarity and more assurance to what God has done so that we might look forward to and have hope in what God's going to do. And let's not forget what God's doing today. Now, Paul prays not that we would just swallow the right pill, that you would just say the right prayer, join the right church, but, that, that, but actually knowing the right pill, the right solution, is a part of the perseverance. It's knowing God and His salvation through Christ, every detail possible. So with that said, we're going to understand how great the power of God is in salvation. The first thing we need to see here is that you would be dead. You would be dead. You're going, okay, duh. Now, Paul says you were dead. Yes, that's tr- absolutely. The implication of that is that you would be dead today. If it wasn't for the greatness of God's power, you would be dead You were dead. And let me say with sincerity and clarity that some of you are dead right now. And you know it. Some of you are dead right now and you don't know it. I pray that God would use today to awaken your heart. We'll come back to that in a few. Verse 1, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now he is, think about this with me for a second. He's not addressing everyone. So he's not saying to the world, everyone out there, that you were dead and that you're not any longer. He's addressing those saints in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Back to verse 1. That's who he's addressing. So he's addressing those who are already rescued saints in Ephesus. And he says to them that you were dead. That you would be dead today. Now this idea of dead, let's just talk about this word dead here for just a moment. It was commonly used to refer to someone who was morally or spiritually deficient. That there was something morally, spiritually lacking. So he's not talking here about a physical death, but a spiritual death. Now, as we know, spiritual death, it will lead to a physical death. But Paul's talking about a spiritual death here. He's saying life for those who do not believe, who are not faithful in Christ Jesus, that they are in a state of living death. If you think about this idea of dead, there's nothing more to say about a person's condition condition once he's categorically declared dead. You can't be more dead, right? You're dead. A dead person's dead. You can't be more dead. You can't be half dead. I mean, I know we say those things. Well, he's, he's half dead, you know, or whatever. But, but not really. He's still alive. This may not act like it. But if you're dead, you're dead. Can't be more dead. And church, I want to tell you again, I want to remind you all throughout today, this is who you would be, this is who you were, and this is who those who don't follow Jesus Christ are around you. They're dead. 
go back and look this week at Luke 9, Matthew 8. Jesus, everyone wants to go, oh, well, Jesus was just about love, and Jesus was just about, you know, just about being nice, and he was a good teacher. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 8, 22. And Jesus, these are Jesus' words, by the way, that's what, and Jesus said means. Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. How are the dead going to bury the dead if the dead is dead? Because he's talking about the dead of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that dead. Paul and Jesus, it's kind of like the same person writing, are talking about the same thing. This dead person who's the living dead, is what he's saying, let the living dead bury the dead. So Jesus is saying, those who are not followers of me, if you go back and read the context of what he's talking about, those who are followers of me will let the living dead go bury themselves. And those who are alive will come follow me. Paul's readers, he talks about, you can go back and read Romans 1, Colossians 1. He talks about how this living death, how they are living death, how we were living death in such a vicious way in the life that we pursue. Another reality of this dead is the impending outpouring of God's wrath on the final day also hung over their heads. 1 Thessalonians 1, you can read that this week, Romans 2. Think of it this way. Think of a walking dead person, right? I'm sure you all have, some of you have seen the TV show. I think it's quite boring, but think of a walking, the walking dead, right? They're walking dead. But not only are they dead, but there's also death hanging over their heads in the form of the wrath of God to drop at any point. And that was us. That was you. Let's ask this question, this next question. What, what is death? So what is death? You're saying I'm dead. What is death? Well, I don't want to cheat here, but it's the opposite of life. Right? Oh, so let's just ask the question, what is life then? I think that will help us answer, what is death? What is life? Think, I want you to think Garden. Think garden, think Genesis 1 and 2, think garden. What did it look like when God breathed life into Adam? What happened? What came from that? Adam knew God. He was in relationship to God. He walked with God. Adam found his joy in God and was blessed of God. He lived in harmony with God, doing what God had called him, what God had made him to do. I mean, there's much more we could say about that, but at this point, this is what life looked like. God breathed life. He didn't breathe death and that. He breathed life and what came of that. <clears throat> to the same point, John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, all right? So this is life. This is what life is. This is the opposite of death. This is what life is. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is life. So what is death? Death is not knowing 
the only true God and Jesus whom he sent. That is death. But knowing him and knowing the one whom he sent is life. Death is everything that biblical life isn't. Life isn't a certain niceness or safety level of a house. Life isn't eating particular foods, even though uh, to me sometimes it is. Life isn't a certain level of quality of education for our kids. Life isn't having the right politician or the most biblical laws. Life isn't having everything under your control. Life isn't having influence over the people around you. Life isn't being comfortable and life isn't having the approval of the world. Life, according to John chapter 17, verse 3, and the rest of the Bible, life is knowing God and the one whom he sent, his son Jesus Christ. So death then biblically means you did not know God. Saying you were dead, you did not know God. Had God not rescued you, you would not know God and you would still be dead today. Right now you would be dead. Again, it's true of your past, it would be true of you today, and it's true of those who don't believe in Jesus Christ and the one whom sent him. Paul is saying, you were not and you would not be interested in the things of God. You didn't know him. Only interested in the things of man and a hater of the things of God. Romans 6.11 He says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin And alive to what? God. How? In Christ Jesus. Just very quickly, a proper understanding of the condition that we were rescued from, I hope, I pray, promotes sanctification. Particularly in a couple different ways. I hope it shows us the real and present danger of the life we often want to take up again. I hope understanding what we were rescued from will show us today that we often want to go back to that and pick that back up. And I'm saying to you, Paul's saying to you, don't. Like, you don't want to go back to that. Why would you want to go back to that? That leads to death. That is death. It's, it's driven by death. It's driven by evil in the course of this world. Why would you want to go back to that? Why would you want to pick that back up again? I think oftentimes we dabble with the things that we that we once were because we don't understand just how terrible they were. Just the state that we were in and what those things we want to pick back up, what they represent, what they come from, what, what delivers those kinds of things, what births those kinds of evils. It's none other than dead people who don't know God and don't know the one whom he sent. Why would we pick that back up? Second way, and I hope it leads us, when we, when we consider what we were rescued from, I hope it leads us to behold the glory of God instead of the idolatry of this world. Again, how do we measure such greatness? Now, I told you earlier, I said, some of you might be dead right now. I want to talk to you for just a moment. So, so I'm sure in a room this size, there's someone in here who is what Paul's calling dead. 
You might feel alive. Life might feel good, even often. You may not even realize that you're dead, but the Bible says that if you have not repented of your sin and placed faith in Jesus Christ and been forgiven of your sins, that you don't, that you don't know God, and therefore you are dead. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit, this is my prayer for you, is the Holy Spirit that God would be merciful and awaken your dead spirit to life, that he would just reach in to your heart and show you how marvelous he is, that he sent his son Jesus to die for your sin in your place. He bore the wrath of God for you. And I pray that he awakens your heart to see that, to love it, to give yourself to it, that you would just ask God for mercy. There's no magic prayer. It's not joining this church. It's, it's none of those things. Ask God for mercy. Ask Him to forgive you for your sins. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. My prayer is that the Spirit would awaken you, even this moment. That you maybe wouldn't hear another word I say this morning. That you would maybe just focus and pray and just ask God to awaken your heart. So Paul... We kind of go back to the flow of thought here. Paul does not stop at death. He moves to describe for us what this death looked like. Give us more clarity on what does this death look like? What does it lead to? What is, how is it lived out? And so church, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, I want you to know that right now, had God not rescued you from death, you would be controlled by the world. You would be controlled by the world. You would be at the mercy of of the world. Again, this was true of you prior to God's rescue, and it is true of every person in this room who is apart from God's rescue. Let's read Ephesians 2, verse 2. It says, In which you once walked. So this is the dead in the trespasses and sins. By the way, trespasses and sins, I don't think he's trying to put two things up against each other. I think he's kind of saying similar things. But these sins that you walk, these which you walked in, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're not going to give equal time to each of these as we just did dead. Um, but nevertheless, walked. What is this walked? What are you talking about? In which you once walked. Think about walked here. Speaking, I think Paul's speaking about the mode of living, the way in which life is expressed or experienced is walking in sin. You are walking in sin. That's how life was lived and experienced for you. Paul is basically saying this, sin dominated your life. It was the dominating force. And the same thing is true for us, that sin dominated our life and that had God not rescued us, sin would still dominate your life now. But let me ask you this question. Does, still, does sin still dominate your life? Now I know, for, for some of us you're going to go, yes it does, right? And I want you to know, like, <laughs> what is the trajectory? Like, are you overcoming sin? Even if it's just a little are you over as God redeeming every, like parts of your life? 
receive that. And then for some of you on the other side of this is, no, there is not the trajectory towards holiness. There is still a succumbing over and over and over again to sin. And if that's the case, then maybe you're still dead. And, and I pray that, that you wouldn't go, oh, well, no, 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 I prayed a prayer. I did. Just give in to thinking through that and praying through that. God will be gracious and merciful to lead your soul to repentance. You don't have to be a, afraid of going, am I dead, am I not? No, it's a good question. I'll move on. But just ask the question, does sin still dominate your life? Because it shouldn't. God is the power of the the greatness of God. He overcame this. Like, I don't want to get the cat out of the bag, but listen, this you walking, this you dead in trespass and sins, walking in these things, the greatness of God, the power of God, rescued you from that like from that he didn't just just give you like an easier way through it no he rescued you from it like you're not dominated by it anymore if you are it's because you don't realize what God has done alright we should go on it says he walked and the next thing he says is following the course of this world alright so world What what does he mean following the course of the world it's just world, you're following the course of the world. The world is the outlook and the mentality, if you will, and the organization of life apart from God. So he doesn't mean the physical world around us. He means the worldview, the belief systems of those apart from God. He means the mentality of the world. Now what was the mentality of the world? So we're talking about this course, following the course. What is the course of the world? The course of the world is one that is in rebellion against God. So the course that we are following is the course of the world, the mentality, and the mentality is that which is against, uh, that which is in utter rebellion against God. What Paul means is that this kind of life is lived under the control and the outlook and the mentality of this present world. That's not freedom, that's slavery. And Paul is saying that's what was a reality of your past, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, it is a reality of you right now. That you're not free, that you're following the course of the world, that you're a slave to the mentality of the world, and that mentality is one that says we want no part of God. We want nothing to do with God. We want to glorify ourselves, and that is it. Think about this for a second. In our culture, there's this push that above all good is the good of self-expression and freedom of my expression. To be a non-conformist, if you will. But unwittingly, all of those who are going to be a non-conformist are simply conforming to the non-conformist worldview. Guys, ultimate good is not self-expression. Ultimate good is God-expression. It's us living as God has called us to live. It is, it is expressing God. It is living and imaging God. It's displaying Him. 
And here's the other thing that we need to take from this. When he says following the course of this world, what Paul is saying is that our plight, our problem, is deeper than anything our own sin could have produced. It's deeper than anything that you and I could have ever... So we tend to say, and this is true, but, but we tend to say, and this conversation stops here, well, have you ever told a white lie? Well, if you've told a white lie, then you've sinned against God. You need a Savior. You need repentance. I want to tell you that Paul is saying to you, the reality is that your problem is much worse than that. You think of the gravest sin you could have ever committed, and that still isn't quite expressing the difficulty of the situation that you were in. Because not only were you sinning, but you were following the course of that which was out of your hands and completely and utterly against God. It's a powerful mode of existence characterized by rebellion against God. And as I said in the beginning, we were at the mercy of the course of the world. Think about the sailboat that I was on for a week. It was very much at the mercy of the one sailing the boat. It was very much at the mercy. I'll never forget this moment. We were trying to get out of the way of this thunderstorm, big thunderstorm, big lightning. I'm like, we're on a boat in the middle of the water. And those wood beams are really tall. Um, and uh, when, if you've ever seen lightning strike a tree, what's it do? The tree doesn't win. It goes kaboom, right? So we're like at the mercy of lots of elements here. It wasn't my course it was a course of the captain. It was a course of the wind, really. The wind determined where we went. If we didn't have any wind, we didn't go anywhere. So I'll never forget him going, him, the, tell him to put out something. I forget the nautical term he used. But he goes and grabs this big old chain. It's like, you know, 10 feet tall. He grabs his chain and hooks it to this cable going all the way to the top of the mast and drops his chain down in the water as it's connected, and I go, what's that for? He goes, well, if lightning strikes, the idea is that the wa- it'll go through this cable and into the water. And, uh, and I'm, of course, I'm thinking, I don't even know if that cable that cable's going to win either. Um, but <laughs> I'm like, oh, so, um, yeah. We're at the mercy of something much greater. I was at the mercy of something. See, that's the, that's the point. It's Paul's point here. You're at the mercy of the world. These people, this mentality that's utterly against God, you were at that mercy. And what does Paul tell us in Romans 12, verse 2, the first part of verse 2? It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewal of your mind. What's Paul say here in Ephesians 2? Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And he says in Romans, have your mind renewed, be transformed. Basically saying, have your mind renewed to correspond and conform to a new world. A world where Christ reigns. Where you follow the course of Christ. Instead of the course of this world that rebels against God, you follow this course. You follow this plan. You become at the mercy of of Jesus. Now, I mean, think about that. What's the trade-off? The mercy of the world, it wants nothing but selfishness and, and pride and its own glory, and it will use you to, to get what it wants. 
or you're at the mercy of the person who gave up everything for you to mark you for keeping, to redeem your soul, to welcome you into his presence for all of eternity, to restore you back to everything you were meant to be, to make you new and fresh and give you a new heart. You're at that mercy versus this mercy. Which one? Amen? Which one? But Christians, we're tempted all the time to follow once again the course of the world. And I pray, church, like, when we are tempted to follow the course of the world, when we forget what we were rescued from, we tend to follow, again, the course of the world. What do we, what do, we do when we, different examples of following the course of the world? The world brings out a defense lawyer when they're approached about wrongdoing. Church, when, when we are approached, when, when the Holy Spirit, when a brother or sister, when the Bible comes and approaches us about wrongdoing in our life, about sin that's present in our life, we don't need a lawyer. We already have a Savior. What do we need a lawyer for? Every person apart from Christ conforms to the world. Like, it must be done. We think about this. Like even just in our culture today, in, in American culture, social situations and problems and law and things going on right now, you dare not disobey. And that's what the culture says. You must conform. And if you don't, there will be a price to pay. There are consequences if you do not conform. We live in a world that idolizes sexuality and the utter free expression of it, no holds bar, no chains attached. We live in a world where the taking of another life still in the womb is seen as a choice and ultimate expression of freedom. These, and if you don't conform, there are consequences to pay. The reality is, church, we are tempted to fall into the same mode, the same mentality all the time. And that's what he's going to tell us in chapter 6. These things that you've been set free from, you now war against. It's not, you just, as Rusty talked about last week, you don't just, you just run away from all these things. You have to war against these things. Who else warred against these things? Jesus. We're followers of Jesus now. What Jesus war against? These things. But, I, but I, I'm, I'm not saying... Let's go out and war against politics and all those things, although I'm sure there's a place for that. What I'm saying is we war against these sins and these temptations in our own lives. You know that pro-choice, that idea of, of choosing to terminate this life so that this life can have a better life? We do that thing all the time. We choose to kill the people around us all the time just so that we can have a better life. We do the same thing. I'm going to degrade this person so that I look better. You're just doing the same thing. You have to watch. I mean, not literally, you know what I'm saying. It's the same mindset, the same mentality. I can sacrifice this life to make my life better. We must continue. He says, you're following the course of the world. You walked following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air. So these evil beings, 
that have been placed under Christ's rule are those in rulership of this realm. Right? So they're not ruling on Christ's behalf. They just haven't conceded to the defeat yet. They haven't realized that Jesus has already won and that their fate is sealed. You might as well surrender now. No, they're still fighting. Now this ruler that he's speaking of specifically here is, of course, Satan himself. And I think it's largely because Satan is ignored that the world is as it is. He has the world convinced that he doesn't even exist in many cases. I just want to remind you what Rusty said last week from the text, that he hates God. Satan hates God. He hates you he hates your marriage. He hates your children. He wants to be God, and he wants to ruin God's creation. He doesn't want good for us. And that's what we were a part of. And that's what we're warring against now. The problem with our world is not that we need a better president or that Planned Parenthood needs to be destroyed and remnants of its existence placed next to the Holocaust Museum. The problem we face is the powers of the air. The evil that is now ruling this world. That's what we face. Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's what we war against. That's what we're up against. So if we know what we're up against, then we can begin to know how we fight and war against that which we're up against. If this is true, if this is what we battle against, we should live life as though we realize that's what we're battling against. All right, next phrase here. He says, spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is the ruler. And the spiritual evil work that is in the sons of disobedience, right? Paul is not saying that we were simply disobedient to a command. Like he's saying more than that. Well, you were sons and you disobeyed. Like when someone told you to do something, when God told you to do something, you disobeyed. He's talking about more than that. Paul is saying that we had utter unbelief, heartfelt refusal to place our confidence in God. Sons of disobedience. God, I will have nothing to do with you. I will not place my faith in you. I refuse. This is who he's talking about. These sons are those who have not believed the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and who because of this stand underneath the wrath of God. This is who we were. Paul is saying you were a son of disobedience, that you wanted nothing to do with God. That you weren't just neutral. You weren't just an amoral person just kind of floating around there and all of a sudden, you know, you go, okay, God, yeah, awesome. No, he's saying you were in the bottom of a pit. You were evil. So again, Christian, I want to remind you, if this used to be true of you, and it would be true today, that you would follow Satan the course of this world had God not rescued you. Like There should not be a day this goes by that you do not remember your past and where you, where you currently should be had God not rescued you.
You know, if you forget who you used to be, if you forget what God rescued, then you won't recognize it when it tempts you day in and day out. When that kind of pops back up, if you have forgotten what that is, I would also encourage you that what God has rescued you from, if that doesn't stir your heart, that doesn't produce some real life change, overcoming sin, then I would encourage you to question whether or not you really actually know it. To realize every day your flesh says, give me some of that old life. We'll talk more about that next week. Give me some of that old life. I want to remind you of a couple last things. The battle in your own life will not be won by the law. You can't just make your set of rules, live by them, and be okay. That's what Adam and Eve did. And how did, how did that fare? Satan won. Why? Because he's much more powerful than them. That which once controlled us has not conceded his defeat. He is still after any part of us he can get. This is why we need more than just obedience. That's why we need the gospel. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Jesus to come war against Satan, to be perfect and blameless in God's eyes, and then defeat him once and for all. That's why we need that. We can't. I want to also remind you that the battle around you, and the people and their lives around you won't be won by just simply giving them law. It'll be won by the gospel. Why? Because you have no part, you have no power apart from the gospel to defeat the powers that we war against. We, have, we need Jesus. We need the greatness and the power of God that was displayed and worked in saving your soul. That same power we need as we war against going back to the old life and as we help and war against Satan for the lives of the people around us. Church, we are still confronted by these powers and this course that we once walked in. And I just want to remind us very quickly that you don't prepare for this kind of war by cracking your Bible open every once in a while. We don't prepare for this war by giving off the impression that you don't sin or that you can't be approached about your sin. You don't prepare for this by never praying. We don't prepare for this by haphazardly giving ourselves to the body of Christ. This is a war that's much more powerful than you and I can do on our own. Too many of us want an easy life. God did not call you to easy. He called you to war. He called you to a battle. The rest comes later, at least the full reality of that rest, that there's rest now in Jesus. But many of us don't realize the war going on around us because we don't understand the war that God rescued us from. And that's what I'm saying today. That's what Paul is saying. This is what God rescued you from. You were dead. You were following the course of the world in which you once walked, following the prince of the power of the air. This is what God has rescued you from. And the last thing I want to point out, it's an amazing thing with us facing that reality that many of us still stand as Christians today. You know, 
I think for many Christians, Satan's scheme is to let them think they are Christians when they're really dead in their sin. That's an amazing scheme. That's a very powerful thing. Hey, you're alive. You're alive. You're alive. You're alive. All we do is treat symptoms and treat symptoms. When in reality, no, we're dead, and we need to realize that. So I pray that if if you're dead, that God would reveal that to your heart today. But this other question, how is it that any of us are still standing? How is it that any of us are still following Jesus? If that's who we were, like... How amazing, first of all, that we'd be rescued from it, but that we'd be kept from going back to it. Like, how amazing. It's only by the amazing and exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe. That same power that He worked there. My prayer is that the cross looks so much bigger to you today. That your awe and wonder of His greatness has captivated your heart. I pray that you leave here with that today. I pray that if you are fearful that you are still dead or simply unsure, that you will talk to someone today. I grab, talk to me after church. Rusty, any anybody in here would be love to talk to. And the last thing I want to say is this: the same power, church, the same power that rescued you from the pit is the same great power that is ensuring the success of your pursuit of holiness and life and eternity with Jesus in heaven forever. That same great power that rescued you from the pit. I'll close with these words from Dr. Jones. He says, Man never starts, as I read earlier, on ground level as it were. We do not start neutral, We do not start in a kind of indeterminate state, neither good nor bad. No, we start in the depths of a pit. We are raised up from that. And then we are raised right up into the very heavens themselves. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Father, I pray anything that I said that was not from you, Father, that you would burn that from our ears. Let it be lost forever and only your words be remembered by our hearts and our minds this morning. Father, I pray that that those of us who you have made alive, I pray that Oh, that you would show us the greatness of your power, that you rescued us from this pit. And Father, for those in this room that don't know, who are dead and don't realize it, or are dead, and you're revealing that to them even this moment, Father, I pray that you would save them. Father, you would make them alive. That you would show them that, that their salvation is only in your Son, Jesus Christ, that his blood covers their sin. And Father, that that joy eternal is theirs to behold if only to the cross they would cling. Father, let our hearts, those who are alive, following your course, Father, let us cling only to the cross. It's in your Son's name we pray.